Are you looking for a job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, 23andMe is looking for a head of design in Sunnyvale, California. And Carbon5 is looking for a mid to senior level product designer in Santa Monica, California. If you're looking for remote work, check out these listings. Turo is looking for a senior product designer. Development Seed is looking for both a cloud engineer and a junior cloud engineer. The Wikimedia Foundation is looking for a senior visual UX designer. And Open is looking for a chief technology officer. Companies, stop making excuses on your D&I efforts and post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these positions that we just listed. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Hank Washington, a designer and illustrator here in Atlanta, Georgia. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So I'm Hank Washington. I am a designer and illustrator. I help brands basically turn uh, strangers to their friends through the power of design. That's everything from creating brand identities, creating custom illustrations for campaigns, kind of the whole creative nine yards. So it's kind of hard to really pack it down into one single thing. But um, yeah, so I kind of look at myself as a creative partner for businesses and brands that have a, a passion to really turn strangers into friends. I like that motto, turn strangers into friends. I've kind of been asking this for everyone who's been on the show for the past few months, but how have you been doing during this pandemic? How are you holding up? That's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, overall, it's it's. I've been good. You know, it has been a, a definitely emotional roller coaster. You know, with the pandemic and and obviously with the protests and just the things that we're seeing about in the news. But overall, I've I've been optimistic. You know, I definitely think this is one of those growing pains. You know, I think this is one of those things that we're filtering out a lot of the bad and allowing a lot of room, a lot more room for the good. So overall, I've been optimistic. Can't say everything has been 100%, but hey, we're still here. So why, why not enjoy what we have? Yeah, it's just kind of a odd time overall, because of course, you still have work to do. You still have things that you just have to do as a, you know, mm-hmm. member of society, but then all this other stuff is happening and you have to kind of even further compartmentalize all these things just to kind of get through the day. So most definitely. Um, 
what would you say you've you've kind of picked up or or gained like during this pandemic so far? Have you have you learned anything new? Have you come upon any new insights about yourself or anything? Yeah, uh, that's a really great question. So I think I learned the the power of patience, just really kind of keeping your head down and just waiting. Not necessarily your turn, but more of like just waiting on your time, you know, when things come around and starting to realize really how important like creatives are now more than ever. Just because, you know, you know, we're in a space where businesses are not open or like just business and company engineering are not open publicly. And uh, right now everyone's moving to this digital phase. And I think more people are understanding how important it is to really have like a, a creative voice or some kind of identifier about yourself to help you stand out in this like crazy world we call the internet. And right now creators are the driving force behind that. So, you know, in the midst of kind of all of this mayhem, so to say, or just kind of this uh, misdirection that's going around uh, that creators are still just as important as they were before, if not more, uh, to really help people adjust to what's going on, you know, nowadays. So, yeah, that's kind of, I guess that's kind of been a big eye opener. Just like, just how important we all are for sure. Yeah. One thing that I've, I'm finding interesting, especially, and you just brought this up is how a lot of places have had to be sort of pushed into digital now. I'm thinking mostly about like remote work, how so many companies before were really beholden to having people working in a physical space. And now because of certain like shelter in place orders and stuff, a lot of companies are moving things online. Like even big companies like Slack are saying, look, you can work anywhere and still apply and work at Slack. Like, you know, the fact that companies are now even changing their own models and ways of thinking to kind of adapt to this new time is is something I'm curious to see if it will if it'll stick around after, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully we're free and clear of this virus. But right. it, it is something that a lot of places have had to be really pushed online, especially entertainment. Like a lot of yeah. entertainment has had to basically all go on like IG Live or Zoom or something. Some aspect of live video or live production. Most definitely. Yeah. We're in a very interesting time. I think, you know, with businesses going completely remote, I think we're gonna really learn how and this, in my opinion, how untraditional the nine to five is. I think this, we're going to start seeing a lot more like valuable things like, you know, have, have people be able to provide a different type of value outside of just time. At least in my perspective, I think it's going to be, you know, really good for a lot of these companies and just employees in general. You know, if, you know, if we're able to manage and control their time and even though, you know, they're not necessarily have the ability to go out and do everything they want because of the virus. But just to kind of break this tradition of nine to five being the American dream in air quotes, I think it's going to be good overall. You know, obviously we're going to have some rough patches along the way, but it's going to have, I think it's going to have a really good impact. And definitely with entertainment, (laughs) it's been interesting to see like these versus matches on Instagram and, and seeing these live performances digitally. It's not the same experiences as before, you know, if you're seeing them live, but I think we're coming up in a different time. Like we're in the we're in the TikTok era where everything is literally on the screen and and you can be entertained in your home. So yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I'm not against it. I'm just curious to see where we can where can we can go with it for sure. I have to say, one particular entertainment outlet has really stepped it up during this digital time, and I have to I have to give props to BET. I don't know if you saw the recent uh, BET Awards. Have you did you see those? I haven't. I haven't. It is, I mean, the BET Awards kind of has its own reputation, I think, in terms of sometimes audio quality or the way Mm -hmm. that the show runs or things like that. And I mean, 
the way that they did it this year during the pandemic is the best that the awards has been at least in a decade. I mean, oh, wow. each of the individual sort of artist performances were just like these sort of almost produced videos. Everything went fairly seamlessly. It was tight. It was well produced. It looked great. I mean, it was hard to even say anything bad about it. Not that, you know, I would say anything bad, but people usually do kind of talk smack sometimes about the BET awards. But (laughs) BET in particular has really stepped it up. And I think also, you know, sort of like what you're saying with verses and things like that. Now music artists are saying, how can I get my music out there to more people in a way that's not a traditional concert venue? Like, would verses have existed in this like pre pandemic stage? Probably not. Or if it did, how know. much would it cost if you were to sort of attend that? Like it would have yeah. to be this type of experience where you had to physically be there. Now with this, you can be at home and cast it on your TV and, you know, enjoy it and stuff. So I'm excited to see what that means, not just for traditional artists that are out there, but even up and coming artists that really right. sort of have come of age in this internet kind of landscape. How are they using technology and using this time to kind of get their music out there and let people know who they are? Right. No, most definitely. And I think I've seen some behind the scenes of of the BET Awards where they show like the green screen. And I forgot one of the hosts or one of the MCs that was showing that. But I thought that was very interesting. I didn't get a chance to actually see it. I need to go back and, and watch it just to watch the flow of it. But I haven't heard anything bad about it, which is very rare <laughs> with <laughs> BET Awards. Yeah. People tend to find something wrong with it. But but the fact that they're able to do it so seamlessly, especially in this little time and weird time that we're in, I'm extremely proud of their production and creative team. And, you know, I definitely am anxious to actually watch it all the way through now to see uh, how it went. Yeah, I'm pretty sure BT is going to, sh- I mean, I'm sure they're showing it like eight days a week at this point, but like all of the individual videos are on their YouTube page as well. So you can see like, Megan's performance and you can see Anderson Pack's performance and right. it's, it was just it was all so good like my hat really has to go off to them for that that's awesome so you run your own design studio tell me about that yes yes it's been a long time coming so I run Hank Design Studio which you can find at hankdesigns.com it's always been one of those things I did on the side for so many years I used to work with an agency right out of college. You know, I worked with them for, you know, roughly around seven years. Great team, great people. They really pushed me to start doing design on the side, like just really taking it on my own. And, and you know, like any other designer, like you start off small with your small clients. Sometimes you help family members out. But that was just a great opportunity to start building up, you know, a portfolio worth of work. And, you know, over time you start updating and replacing projects. But I've been doing it on the side. And then as of recently, you know, it made more sense, especially with this pandemic going on. I've been fortunate enough to have just really great relationships with people who have been supportive of me over the years to just to keep me busy for one and and just give me great advice and direction. And ultimately it led to the leap. So I've been roughly doing it for a few months full time now. And it feels good to wake up to to do it without having to wait out there, you know, five o'clock to make any type of move or anything for sure. Wow. So, yeah, you're just now into it. Just a few months. Congratulations, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. What's kind of a typical day like for you? So mornings are emails, emails and meetings. As I try to schedule them as much as I can. And then the rest of the day and afternoons are just project work and, you know, just helping clients, you know, work on different types of projects and mediums and 
and yeah, and just kind of staying busy. And, and I, luckily, I have a, a really great network that I work with. Sometimes we tag team on projects and, you know, from there and then, you know, trying to keep things steady, I guess, on the social media marketing side, just kind of posting work, sharing updates and things like that, just to keep uh, lead flow coming. And then and it just starts over, you know, so it's see, I'm still working that kind of a, a daily routine. Every day is kind of kind of new, but under the same umbrella. So I'm still getting there. I'm still trying to find that process and get those wheels turning. What are kind of the best types of clients for you to work with? I really enjoy clients who are who are brave, like those who are really want to disrupt like the status quo. You know, those tend to be clients who are either in a phase where they're looking to like rebrand, whether like, you know, their messaging or just their overall image is not communicating what they really want to say. You know, those clients tend to tend to be the most fun and, and the most daring and really push you to the limit and to kind of really put you in a position where you can't think traditionally the way you used to before or, you know, safe as you would like. So, and obviously, you know, those clients are not bad at all either. It's just, I guess, in the preferred sense, you know, those clients that are bold and brave and, and really let you hone in on your style, right? I've been lucky enough to have clients who have allowed me to become, create the way that I've been creating what they see on my site. And I tend not to have to break like a comfort or like a comfort zone with them. So, but in a nutshell, yeah, those who are just brave and ready to break the status quo. And so now that you've been kind of doing this for a few months and starting to get a routine together, what would you say being in business for yourself has taught you? It's taught me patience. It taught me that, you know, you get, what you put in, just learning how to talk to clients and, and create relationships. Because a lot of this, you know, is not necessarily new to me because I've done a lot of this with the the agency I used to work with before and just applying it to myself. I'm starting to learn how to really gain empathy, or so to say, like really putting myself in the client's shoes and understand like what their pain points are and what they may be hesitant on, you know, moving forward with. And that allows me to, to want to like really build up my patience. Cause you know, sometimes you go in, like you have to where people are ready to go, but they're hesitant. You like, come on, what are you waiting on? Like, you don't, <laughs> you don't have to think about this no more, but, but flipping the script and putting yourself in their shoes really helps, like really helps you understand where the client is coming from and just how business is moved, right? You know, and, and really understanding how to be empathetic with people and understand their pain points and, and just kind of find a level of understanding and common ground. Yeah. Dealing with clients, you know, I, I tell people a lot that have their own kind of studio, especially when they're starting out. I was like, a lot of it is psychology, just mm-hmm. trying to put yourself in the shoes of the client to see what it is that they want. But then also, qualifying the client to see if that's even something that or or even a person or a business that you want to work with you know right Um, i remember when i started my studio back in like 2008 2009 and i would take any work as long as you're paying like i I was not picky at all i was like i just need to start getting some money in getting some work going that's not the way you should do it (laughs) like i know that it's it's tempting to do that because you want to you know, have positive cash flow, but like really take time to think about the types of clients that you do your best work for and the best types of clients that you can work with because you kind of have to set those boundaries. At least I found you have to set those boundaries for yourself as early as you can because if you give them an inch, they will take a mile. Like you have to be very, you know, kind of strict about like I only communicate via email during these hours, whatever, because 
I've had clients call me, text me, <laughs> pop up at my apartment. Like, okay, this is not, I didn't do it right. So yeah, <laughs> establishing that, that sort of boundary is, is really important. Most definitely. Most definitely. And it, and it goes a long way too. Like if working with the right type of clients, they'll appreciate that and understand that. And, and I value relationships over transactions anyway. That's been a big, big impact in my business so far. Just relationships, like just like have an understanding, obviously do great work, deliver on time, but you know, overall just be a good human, you know, and that, that goes such a long way further than anything else business could take you. Yeah. Now you grew up in Mississippi. Tell me about that. Yes, I grew up in Columbus, Mississippi, which is northeast Mississippi. Yeah, I grew up there, lived there all my life, well, majority of my life, not all my life. Yeah, I was a regular kid. You know, I had a mom, dad, older brother that I couldn't stand at times. And, you know, I played sports and everything. And if you're familiar with Mississippi, even with a little bit, the creative space was definitely not a kind of like a dominant career choice or even just an idea career choice to pursue within Mississippi. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, anything like somebody's father. It was just the ultimate culture. Right. You know, and I think about like the needs and and what people value there. It's just completely different than, you know, in most cases, different in most places for sure. But yeah, I grew up there, played sports, and then I got introduced to creativity in general and just design. I would say late when I was in high school. So this is probably around 2010, 2009, 2010. And then ended up, you know, going to pursue it and making a career choice. So I grew up in Alabama, so I kind of know what you're talking about in terms of not really being, I guess, exposed to creativity as a, as a job or as a, a career prospect. But right. were you kind of exposed at least to like design and art just growing up? A little bit. My brother was probably the first creative that I ever got introduced to. He was a very, very talented illustrator. Yeah, I remember just going into his room and he'll be like just sitting on the edge of his bed drawing the boondock characters, like just freehanding. And I was just like, how do you know how to like create that without looking at something or tracing <laughs> it? But yeah, he was one of the first, I guess, creatives that I got introduced to. And he was really big into music. So his room would, would be filled with posters and CDs and records and, and sketchbooks full of, you know, these random sketches of his classmates and stuff like that. And he was much older than me. And um, yeah, and he kind of put me into that realm of like being creative and being expressive and really I guess outwardly displaying the things that you were interested in and things you were into. But he had a buddy of his that um, that was really into design specifically. And uh, I remember he had a, it was this blog that uh, I used to always love to like come home and like go look at. And this was like in the MySpace time. So, you know, we, you know, Tom, that's when Tom was your only friend online, <laughs> your first follow <laughs> online. But he used to have this blog where he would share like some of his artwork, some of his design work, I think like, you know, new music and things like that. And it used to blow my mind because I didn't know what that was. And I just remember like I was looking at it one day and my brother came by and, and I was like, hey, I don't know what this is, but this is like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is like dope. I don't know what to call this or anything. And he was like, yeah, that's graphic design. And it was like, I was like, okay, I don't know what it's going to take, but this is what I want to want to do for at least for the next few years and make a career out of this for sure. And so you went to Mississippi State University, uh, same as actually another guest we had on here recently, William Hill. He also is a, a Mississippi State University uh, graduate. Did you study design there? 
Yes, yes. I ended up studying design there in 2000, started in 2011. Yep. And what was your time like there? It was great. It was very challenging and eye-opening at the beginning, especially if you're not familiar with design at all or what goes into it. I was like, stressed <laughs> coming, mm-hmm. going into it, but just, but you know, it was just a learning curve, right? It was the growing pains, but I met a lot of great people there. You know, I made some really great relationships with just some faculty, you know, obviously my classmates who I still love and cherish today. You know, it was a really great experience. And, you know, once I got further into the the program, you know, I was kind of in this, this weird phase, right? Because like, again, like Mississippi wasn't necessarily a space where design was that was, at least for me, wasn't career choice that was ideal, right? So, it wasn't a lot of talk of how you can really thrive as a designer. It was always, if you studied art, you became the starving artist. You know, that was like, that was facade that went around the whole program. And Mm. for some reason that just didn't sit well for me for a long time. And, you know, I I had a, a problem with, People just settling on just like, hey, just because you're a designer, like, don't expect to make a lot of money, you know, doing this. That was you were you were hearing that while you were in school, like through the program. Yeah, yeah, I was hearing that while I was in school, and it it was just conversation among like other students of like what they thought the career was, and it was really challenging for sure. That sounds really depressing (laughs) because everyone's studying to to graduate and get a degree, but then if you don't have, I guess that. I don't want to say faith necessarily, but if you don't have the foresight to see like, oh, I can turn this into a career, then why are you studying it? Is it just because you love the craft? That's wow. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't want to put the staff down because like there are some really amazing professors there that really ta- that taught me like some really valuable lessons. And, and it wasn't the case across the whole program. It was just things that you will have. You know, you would have kind of these funny conversations and and even with just with culture, like graphic design was like the career that was like, oh, this is oh, like what did like what do you do? Or like I didn't really necessarily see like thriving design, especially like thriving black designers. And it wasn't because mm. nothing was out there. It was just something we didn't see and we didn't know existed versus today. You know, it was kind of a facade that was going around, even though it was kind of made as a a joke at times, it still didn't really sit well. And, you know, that was something I wanted to, and still want to like prove wrong. And I think, you know, Maurice, your podcast and just in general, highlighting just black creators and designers is definitely proving that to be false, you know, for sure. Well, thank you for that. But I mean, I'm just trying to, I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around it because like I didn't go to design school. I went to to college and studied math and design Mm -hmm. was always something that was just a hobby of mine. But even Mm -hmm. what you're saying about your experience in the program, like I've heard that from other people who were students at not just other four-year institutions, but like even at some of like the top design schools, like Mm -hmm. they're getting that same type of kind of rhetoric, you know, thrown at them about like, this is not something that you can really be a part of, or, you know, you don't mm-hmm. really see yourself in this. Were there other like black designers or or even like design educators in the program? No, there wasn't a lot. There was one in particular, and I'll, I'll never forget him. He was Mr. Bostic, Alexander Bostic. He was one of my illustrator professors. And he was one of the first, I guess, one of the first like 
leaders there that really opened my eye to like just the business aspect of design. And he, you know, he used to tell me about some of the projects and and he worked on and and how much he used to like charge. And he gave me a lot of great recommendations on books on just like just, just to study it. And but he was one of the first people there to really open my eyes to say that, hey, don't let anybody here fool you. You can literally make a living and a great living as a creative in general and, you know, in outside of Mississippi or in Mississippi, wherever you are. But, you know, he was originally from New York. So he has a very different type of perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. coming in, but chatting with him and and taking his classes a couple of times, we had plenty of conversations where he just opened my eyes and said, Hey, listen, don't let nothing around you, nothing that you hear in here phase you, you can make just as much money as any other profession here. If you, you know, really apply yourself and, study the whole game right and just like get an understanding of what how the people that are winning how they're winning and just like mimic them and just see and take what you learn from them and apply it to yourself and i'm forever grateful for those conversations i have for him for sure that's good that's good that you actually had someone there especially another black creative that was able to kind of show you the possibilities of what you could most do. definitely most definitely so when you graduated what was your next step Fortunately enough, I was at the end of kind of my college career, like close, like before graduation, I ended up getting an internship with an agency, a startup agency there uh, called Socially In, where I was really introduced to the <laughs> the real world of design. A really good buddy of mine had started a company maybe like two years before I ended up coming aboard. And I was one of the early designers to really join the team. So I ended up interning there and then I got brought on full time. I want to say like roughly around 2014, so to say. So we're like maybe like a year and a half before I graduated. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked there and, you know, I, from there, it was just kind of, it was really just up from there, honestly. I made great relationships with them and they really introduced me kind of to that first taste of real client work, <laughs> like having like, you know, these harsh deadlines and, and like this scope of things to really do outside of just school and um and really just open my eyes to the real world design. Just kind of grew from there, right? We we started out really, really small and again, like I was one of the first creatives there. So it was uh there was no like creative direction, so to say, as in like, you know, I had to report under like another like advanced creative or like things like that. It was more of like, hey, you got the skill, this is what the client needs, let's get this done. And we ended up growing, you know, over time. And that ultimately led to my move to Birmingham, which was in 2017. And at that time, I think we started off with, when I first started, it was like five people um, on the team. Actually, I think it was like four people on the team. And then we ended up growing to 20, close to 20 people, which I think is probably more now. But yeah, that was kind of my transition outside of uh, graduation, just being with them um, and then starting Hank Designs on the side. Ah, the ham. I remember Birmingham. Uh, I only remember Birmingham. Of course, I'm, I'm from Alabama. Folks who know the show know that, but mm-hmm. Birmingham was always like the big city. Yeah. Being from Selma, uh, we knew about Montgomery because Montgomery's the closest city in terms of just like distance, the closest big city, at least it was 50 miles away. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. and of course, folks know about Selma to Montgomery because of the civil rights movement and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. it was like, Oh, Birmingham. Birmingham is like, that's the big city. What was it like when you first moved there? It was scary, to be honest with you. 
it was my first time moving in um in Mississippi and I'm sure you know Maurice like being in a small town having buildings replace trees is a little bit mm-hmm. <laughs> can be a little bit intimidating at times but yeah. uh, but overall you know it was fun to be around a different type of energy and because of just the talent pool and and just the way that Birmingham has been moving over the past you know maybe 5 or 6 years at that time, you know, the company really wanted to be a part of that. And we wanted to kind of be in this space where there were more businesses coming into town and more entrepreneurs and, you know, a lot of money being invested in the city at the time. And I mean, even right now, downtown is completely different than where it was when I first moved there. Yeah, and we just wanted to be a part of that. But Birmingham has been like a really great experience. Just the people there, the food is top notch, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> And it was a great experience for sure, like just being around those people and creating those relationships and really seeing the city grow from where it was to where it is now is, you know, it's been enlightening. Now, people might not look at Mississippi or Alabama, as you know, honestly, as sort of design forward places. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, you're from Mississippi, you lived in Alabama, now you're here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think about that stereotype? Well, I, I mean, I can understand from the outside looking in. Alabama, Mississippi ha- is very, at least in my opinion, has always been very historic, you know, for good and bad things, unfortunately. But um, it's just the culture, right? You know, a lot of, at least from where I grew up, I grew up in the country. So, like, there wasn't a lot of need for advertising or, like, you know, kind of like identities and things like that. People only invested in what they needed, not necessarily just in what they just they what they wanted. So I can understand just from a culture standpoint, like the need of design wasn't necessarily value because one, people didn't really understand it. You know, they didn't understand like why packaging needs to be looked a certain way or things like that. It was more of like that type of approach was always from the outside looking in, like other states and other design communities contributed to what Mississippi has had. It was rarely that we, or Alabama has had, it was rarely that it was coming from the inside out. And obviously you may have had it on a small scale, but I would say prior to this last decade, you know, that wasn't necessarily a thing that I've seen, but, you know, I think it just comes from a level of understanding, right? You know, even when I first started and, and telling people that I wanted to be a designer, most people couldn't understand it. So like, you know, naturally they kind of neglected it or didn't necessarily see it as like the best choice, not because they didn't want me to do it. It's just, they couldn't understand it enough, understand it enough to one, either support it or just to be able to get behind it to see where it can go. So I can understand from both perspectives, but from the inside looking out is really more of just a culture thing. And, and at least for my family, just growing up black in Mississippi, like we were all about survival, like, do what you got to do to take care of your family and survive, you know, to the next year, things like that. But to have to go after like your passion or just like have something that you really enjoy doing. And I guess understanding the concept that you can make money for it was very foreign. And, you know, it was easy to shy away from that or be not necessarily pro like going for that or anything like that. So yeah, that's not where I've seen it, at least growing up. Actually, now that you mention it, I think about it. I think when folks think about the South, particularly, I would say during these past few months, there's a strong culture of preserving heritage. Mm-hmm. And so that often means, or, or I think that often translates into hanging around old stuff, 
like not really updating right. things so they can be new and modern, which is a, I mean, I'd say is a, a fair usage of what design is for to update things to solve problems and things of that nature. Right. But if, you know, you're trying to preserve old buildings and preserve the old ways of thinking and stuff like that, then it could be hard to kind of let that, that light of creativity in to allow new things to prosper. So now that exactly. you mention it, I totally get that. So when you were in Birmingham, did you hear of a studio? Or I think it's an agency, not a studio called O2 Ideas. O2 Ideas. I believe so. Are they still there? I think they're still there. I've been trying to get the, and I don't know if how possible this will be, but as this was like early on when I was doing Revision Path, I mm -hmm. um, had heard about O2 Ideas because they were like, oh, you need to hear about this black ad agency in Birmingham called O2 Ideas. I was like, what? And I was doing my research. It was this guy named Shelly Stewart who created mm -hmm. it. And he was a, a tie salesman. And like he was a tie salesman. And then he sort of went from there to being a radio personality. And then mm -hmm. went from there to kind of like opening up this big creative agency. Wow. And like it's it's still around to this day. Uh, I don't know if you had heard about it or if it's something that's like a, a big deal in the like Birmingham design community. You know, I've heard the name before, but I I haven't for some reason I just haven't like really looked into like who they were and, and what they're about. But no, that's news to me. <laughs> them to be uh black owned. No, I'm I gotta look them up. No, I definitely haven't heard of haven't um looked into them like that. So as we kind of were talking about a bit before we started recording, now you are in Atlanta. What prompted the move from Birmingham to Atlanta? You know, just the culture, you know, I've done a lot of business in Atlanta over the years and I obviously have family here and and just the relationships I develop and people telling me just about like how people are so connected here and just the way things are moving has been so different than what I'm used to. And obviously it made more sense, you know, in this, with all this COVID stuff going around, I wanted to venture out on my own and um, even though it was scary, you know, it made more sense to come to Atlanta. And then my girlfriend's here. So she's, you know, been working here for a while. And it made more sense that, you know, we didn't want to pay two separate rents. And, you know, if I'm always here or she's always at, at my house or anything, then it's like, hey, let's just go in. Let's just make this financially make sense. And then, you know, Atlanta just made more sense than Birmingham at the time. And yeah, and just been here and just trying to learn my way around. So you moved here during the pandemic? During the pandemic. <laughs> wow. So you've really only been here then for just a few months. What part of town are you in? I'm in Decatur. In Decatur. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm in the West End. So I'm, uh, I wouldn't say I'm not too far, but it's on the other side of 7585. But I know, I know Decatur, at least downtown Decatur, I know pretty well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Things don't seem to be very far from here for some reason. I, I think with... I think with 85 and just 20, just to be able to move around the city, especially at that speed, uh -huh. is a little different from back home. Like, you know, back home, the nearest store was like 20 minutes away. It was like, okay, well, <laughs> almost 20 minutes away. It's like, okay, I'm just going to the yeah. store. <laughs> well, I think also you're here during a time. And I mean, I'm not, I haven't been getting out and about a lot just because it's the pandemic and I'm trying to do the like safe thing of just staying at home as much as I can. But right. I mean, even like you, you came at a time when I'm guessing there's probably not a lot of traffic. I don't no. know for sure. I, I'm imagining that there probably still is traffic, but you know, Atlanta tends to be very uh, notorious for having like super bad traffic. But if you're out there in Decatur, I mean, it's pretty easy to get into town if you're just coming in town, like on Ponce, 
Ponds mm-hmm. will take you like straight into Midtown and you can go yeah. pretty much anywhere you need to go from there. Most definitely. Yeah. Well, welcome to the city. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. It's It's been a learning curve. I'm trying to get used to definitely seeing more black people than I ever have before. <laughs> um, but uh, no, but I'm loving every minute of it. And, and like you said, like when, when we moved here, you know, there was definitely not a lot of people out. This was kind of in that weird time when uh, I think we were just getting to that point of like uplifting or lifting up like the, the lockdown. I think we were in like phase one or something like that. Yeah. So more people were out and I guess you can say there was still a lot of like paranoia things out in the air but you know it's been smooth we didn't have any issues you know we just got our stuff we went straight to the to the farming we said hey, okay we're just gonna move let's go get groceries make sure we're good and and we just been here ever since yeah well you know if y'all are getting out and about what are some places I can recommend in terms of just like great restaurants and different types of like I guess more, I don't want to necessarily classify it as ethnic food, but like if you go up by Buford Highway, you will see food from like every country. There's mm. like Burmese restaurants and Vietnamese restaurants and Korean barbecue and a whole bunch of just great stuff up Buford Highway. If you make it up that way, I'm trying to think what else is like scenic. I mean, Atlanta is, is unique in that we are kind of surrounded by nature. There's trees mm-hmm. everywhere. And you can go kind of an hour outside of the city in any direction and you'll run into nature. Like you can go up north to the mountains up in Blue Ridge. Mm-hmm. You can go like further south. You can go east and get to Athens, you know. So mm-hmm. there's a lot that you can really kind of drive around and see. And I mean, I would imagine now at a time when hopefully more people are staying in, it's a little easier to do that. But yeah, one Definitely. of my favorite things. In the city to do has been to like, especially if it's like late at night, maybe this isn't a totally safe thing to do now. I don't know, but like, <laughs> just like drive like up and down Peachtree, like uh, the, the main Peachtree street and just see how things change from like downtown to Midtown to Buckhead to Brookhaven and then come back right. down. Like, it's kind of amazing. I mean, I used to live in Buckhead when I, not when I first got to Atlanta. When I first got to Atlanta, I lived here in the West End. And then I was in school here. And then I moved up to Buckhead my last two years of school, had an apartment up there, graduated, mm-hmm. moved to another apartment in Buckhead, stayed there for another, I think, like two or three years, maybe, and then moved back down here to the mm-hmm. West End. But like just even seeing how the city has changed in the time that I've been here, I've been here now for 21 years. The city has changed a lot. I mean, I came like not too far after the Olympics. Like Fricknick had, ah, Fricknick had died out. It was like the turn of the century. Like I started college in 99. And so mm-hmm. really seeing how the city has changed a lot since then has been interesting, really with gentrification too. Like, yeah, I'm fortunate that the part that. of Atlanta where I live in has not been too gentrified, but mm-hmm. there's other parts that have been like completely changed, <laughs> especially in East yeah. Atlanta. There's, there's neighborhoods in East Atlanta that have completely changed now because of gentrification. So. Atlanta's a, it's a good city. It's a good city. I mean, I'm partial to it because I've lived here, but you know, Mm -hmm. you couldn't have picked a better time to come here, I would say. Most definitely. No, I'm, I'm excited just to see the future. And, you know, I've visited a lot growing up too and, and, you know, just exploring the different parts Uh of Atlanta. So it's kind of hard to like wrap your head around. Like you never can come to Atlanta just once. Oh (laughs) God. No. Yeah. No, it takes like years of visits to like really get a hold of it. But no, I'm looking forward to it. I, my, you know, my goal for this year is just connect with as many people as I can here and just like 
you know, just create not only a name, but just, you know, create just relationships that can go farther than just, you know, just a handshake. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Nice. So I checked out your Instagram and I see that you do a lot of work using the iPad Pro. Tell me about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it's one of the best investments I've made so far. But yeah, I've been using the iPad Pro. Um, I have the 10 inch I think it's 10.5 inch. Yeah. I'm using it for a couple of years now. And I, I've been heavy into the Procreate app, which has been like so amazing for me. Yeah. And I started to just, you know, get back into illustrations. You know, early on, I was heavy into design and just branding for, for companies. And I did illustration for fun just a little bit. You know, once I invested into getting an iPad and, and started working with Procreate, I just, uh, I wanted to get back into it more and it made more sense because it was more mobile. I didn't necessarily have to sit at my desk. I didn't have to have my tablets and things like that, which I still love to use, but just to be able to do it all in one place and still do it anywhere you need to go made it a lot easier. But yeah, so I started playing with that and ended up coming across kind of this style of what I call fuzzies. I don't know if you probably see it on the Instagram, but yeah, started to create like this little universe of just characters and, and with this like, texture and simplistic shapes i've just been rolling with it ever since you know people have been enjoying seeing it so i decided just to keep going yeah i saw i think the most recent one i think you did was for john lewis who just passed recently yes. rest in peace but I, I saw some of the other the other fuzzies that you had and it was interesting watching the time lapse and seeing how you sort of start with these simple shapes and then you sort of add in it looks like you're kind of adding in shadows not just to create texture but also to create like depth between mm -hmm. the elements. I thought that was really neat. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's been fun. You know, I was really influenced by an artist called Rhymes Like Dimes. I think his name is like Ryan Balgo, Bal or something. I can't, I can't pronounce his name properly, but he goes by Rhymes Like Dimes and, and he's an amazing illustrator and animator. And his style is very, he has texture in his style, but he has this very, I call it like a sunset type feel. Like he uses these really, really soft pastel colors and and his work just always blew my mind. And I wanted to create something that wasn't exactly that, but just something that made me feel the way that his work made me feel. So, you know, just kind of exploring and then, you know, came across that fuzzy style and just kept with it. I'm looking up rhymes like Dobbs now, because at first when you said it, I immediately thought of the MF Doom song. Rhymes like that. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at his work now. I can see, I can see where the influence comes in. I can see definitely mm -hmm. in terms of like everything is kind of curvy, monoline, mm -hmm. but there is that that sort of texture that's added to it. This is really dope. Yeah, definitely. Now I always make sure I have to shout him out every time I get asked about it because his his work was definitely uh, really influential, at least in my illustration career for sure. Who are some other artists that inspire you? Man. It's a lot across the board. So Adey Hogue is a very talented lettering artist and designer that I look at a lot. Man, who else? Uh, Adey Hogue. I know him by Instagram name. Uh, so uh, Cool Urban Hippie is actually another talented designer out of Memphis who also is a, a lettering artist as well. But he's super talented, super influential. And he put me on the spot here. I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a lot of Black artists. Paper Frank, who's an illustrator out of Atlanta, he's a super talented, super talented designer that really, I guess, really pushed me into back into illustration, not necessarily developing a style, but just getting into it, 
I have to come back. I, I have so many, and I, I'm literally going blank on who I <laughs> who I can shout out. <laughs> I've heard of uh, a cool urban hippie. His name is uh, So Tolson. Hopefully, hopefully, I'm not saying his name wrong, but I know who he is That's, though. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Yeah, he's out of Memphis. Uh, super talented lettering artist, and I just love his love his style for sure. We've had some other letterists on the show before. There's also some I would love to just have on the show. Like I'd love to get Vaughn Fender to come on the show one time. We've had. Andrea Williams, we've had Marcus Williamson, we've had a few others. I'm trying to see now. I'm now I'm stuck trying to think off the top of my head. We've had yeah, a no. few. Uh, we've definitely had a few letterists, particularly. We've had a bunch of illustrators, but letterists in particular. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of who we had. So it also looks like you do these sort of like typography challenges. What's the inspiration behind doing that? Yeah, so those are the 36 days of type. It's actually an annual. I don't, I don't want to say a contest, but it's more like a, a call to artists that, uh, where it's this page on Instagram, but I think they build it out to a whole brand, like it's a whole company itself now. But every year, I think around, I want to say around March or so, they make this call for the 36 days. You know, they call artists to basically illustrate letters for each day. So it'll start with A as day one, and it goes all the way through Z, and I think zero through nine, and then you end on the ampersand, I believe. But they've been doing it for a few years. I think now they've gotten bigger than ever. I've been participating in it, and every so often, I, I think I did it this past year, and I think the year before that, I didn't do it. But it's such a, a cool challenge. It's, it's very tough. <laughs> it's, it's very challenging to be able to make time each day to like dedicate to creating a letter, especially in a style that you can kind of keep consistent. But it's been an amazing challenge. It's helped me a lot kind of learn how to stay consistent, but keep things like I guess refreshed in a sense Mm -hmm. and it really helped me kind of hold in on just like understanding styling and especially now because we're in like this you know this heavy social media space like consistency is like key in a lot of cases yeah but participating in that challenge has really helped me seeing that and it's a super fun I I definitely encourage any designer out there to participate in next year's whenever it comes back I mean, you can definitely see like your work being tested and see you grow as a designer if you're able to make it all the way through. Yeah, I think every designer should try to do some type of a continued design challenge like that just to kind of force themselves into a level of not just consistency, but also just rigor to like keep showing up, no days off, just keep doing it and see if right. your practice kind of evolves from doing that. There's a, a good friend of mine, Diane Holton, on her Instagram, she did a project called, oh God, I'm blanking on the name of the project, but she basically made numbers. She basically made a design based of found objects. So like uh-huh. pencils, paper clips, whatever. But she did the numbers mm-hmm. one through 1000. And so, oh, wow. yeah. So like every day there's a different one of like these different digits that she's made. I think it's actually called daily digits. That's what it's called. Daily digits. So yeah, Uh, she did that for a thousand days and it's, it's amazing. I mean, now she's been able to work with HP. I think, I think she's collating it all into a book. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but if you go on her Instagram, you can see where she's mm -hmm. made all the different numbers off of like just random things, gum wrappers, matchsticks, like anything that's around just to kind of make the number and then take a picture of it. So sort of forcing you to like think outside of, how you design like mm-hmm. with a tool and like us- using design as like a practice 
So I think every designer should kind of take some, and it doesn't have to be, you know, (laughs) it'd have to be a thousand days and have to be 36 days. You can just try to do it for a week and just see kind of how you keep up with it, you know, and then maybe try to extend it. You know, so I think it's a good practice for designers to have. Most definitely. No, and Diane, if you're listening, please make that a book because I would definitely buy that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, you hit the nail right on the head. Like, it's definitely a good way to just just practice and trying to find, especially if you're trying to find a style. That's kind of a question I've been getting lately. Is like, how do you find a style? How do you create your own voices? And I think challenges are just the way to go. Like, put yourself in a position where you're forced to make a decision and see how you can consistently make that same type of decision to really hone in on something that you can be you can be proud of and ultimately repeat over time so but no you you really touch base uh, for sure on that one now as you've been working with your studio and you're updating your social media and everything you know kind of getting your brand out there i saw last year that you gave your first talk your first solo talk at creative mm-hmm. south which is a conference that takes place here in columbus georgia mm-hmm. tell me more about kind of how that came about yeah so I guess kind of preface before that, I, um, with the agency I was with, you know, we gave kind of these small workshops, which is my first, I guess, introduction to like professional speaking, so to say. And I don't want to say speaking, like I was just kind of back up <laughs> a little bit. So I would stand up there and like say things that like fill in the gaps on certain stuff. But uh, I ended up attending Creator South in 2018. And that was my very first conference, like ever, like joining. And I went there, you know, I met some great people, got to meet the staff, Mike, you know, who's the head of head of the the conference and talk to him and just some other people on the team and, you know, really had a really great relationship with them. You know, I had this feeling, I guess, like kind of an epiphany that like I just wanted to share on this on this stage because I was uh, one of the first talks that I think was by Jamal Crawford. I want to say his name. He's a actually a designer out of Cleveland. And he does oh, a Jamal really, Collins. Yeah, Collins. I'm sorry. Yeah, Collins, yeah. Like Crawford. Jamal Collins, a just an amazing, amazing person overall. I, I keep up with him and he's always showing his work with those kids in Cleveland and teaching them design and just being in their lives. He was uh, definitely a big influence when I first went to Creative South in 2018 because he spoke that year. And I kind of had this like motivational epiphany is like I want to share on this stage and like I said I was looking up and trying to see like who from I kind of use Mississippi as my advantage like who from Mississippi shared on this stage like is anybody from my area has shared on the stage and luckily no one has done it yet and I didn't know how it was going to happen I just wanted to like just put it out there I'm, I'm a believer like if you put it out there and you believe it like it'll come back to you the following year I think it well no actually the later that year I think it was like in November they put out a call for speakers. They kind of let basically let put out an open form that you can fill in, put a topic, you can put your past, you know, talks that in there and just kind of basically submit and get a chance to speak at the following conference in 2019. And uh, I was like, why not? Like, let me just see like what happened. I really didn't have like, I kind of knew it was going to happen, but I wasn't, I guess, as motivated at that time. So I was like, you know what, let me just try this. I'm going to go do it. I put in a topic and, you know, I submitted the work and I ended up getting a call later. I think it was probably like two or three weeks later saying that, you know, I got the opportunity to meet. I mean, uh, to talk there. And uh, it blew my mind. I was excited. And then uh, I immediately got nervous. I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, I, <laughs> like, I'm going to go up and talk to these people that I have no idea who they are. And they're just going to hear from a uh, little of me. But 
I've been fortunate enough, you know, my girlfriend was a big impact and just helping me getting ready. And I had a few friends that, you know, helped rehearse and like kind of showed me the, just showed me the realm of speaking and how to pace and how to pause, which is one of my big hurdles at that time. Just kind of figuring out, okay, you don't have to speak and feel the air every second that you're up there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just learning there and then, you know, time came around and, you know, and I ended up getting on there and it went really well. And I, even before that, I ended up switching the subject matter. I think, I can't even remember what my first topic was, but I ended up changing it to talking about just the perspective of color and just really highlighting where essentially like kind of what we're talking about now in, in the industry is like, where are the black designers? And, and even when we do see them, like, how can we create a space of inclusion where their ideas is just as viable as, if not better than what's already been out there. I'm just touching base on that and a little bit of my backstory. And, and I'm fortunate enough, it's been received really well. You know, I had conversations with just other people that I looked up to just to kind of like make sure that was like the right direction to go. Everyone was on for it and, you know, ended up doing really well. So I'm forever grateful to Creator South and the team, Mike, Peter Detondo, Andrew Hawkrattle, just all of them just giving me that chance and platform because that really shifted my career dramatically. Nice. Have you done any more talks since then? Uh, yeah, I've done a few. It um, it really actually launched a, a big like part of the business, which is speaking. But uh, I've done some virtual virtual conferences. I even gotten the chance to speak out of the country in Morocco. I think this was in, yeah, it was early 2020. I want to say this right February around that time. So yeah, it's definitely led to a lot more opportunities and a lot more speaking gigs. So, and to be able to go out of the country, which I've never thought in a million years I would do, just let me know, like, this is, this is the right way to go. Damn. That's awesome, man. That's really great to hear. Thank you. When you think about kind of, you know, things are, it sounds like things are really starting to take off for you. I mean, you're, doing this with the speaking, you've got your studio and everything. And then of course this pandemic happens and it kind of puts like, I don't know, it sort of puts like a pause on everything. What keeps you motivated and inspired during this time to kind of keep going forward? I would say just the fact that I don't have to be like, like this is all like grace, you know, to me like there, I could have been literally somewhere else doing like something completely different and may not enjoy it as much as I am now, uh, I always like remind myself that none of this had to happen. You know, somebody could easily have said no, or like the opportunities could have gone to someone else. And just reminding myself like that, I have to be grateful for everything, the good and the bad that kind of just keeps me motivated and, and definitely keeps me humble enough. And, you know, I think it's sometimes it can be a little, a little toxic. Cause I'm like, do like, I'm asking myself, like, do I deserve this? Like, you know, there's somebody that's like way more talented than I am that can really do a good job at this, but constantly remind myself, you know, that I didn't have to get this opportunity. I don't have to be in the space that I am and staying grateful and staying humble for that. That kind of keeps me motivated to keep going that if this wasn't supposed to happen, it wouldn't have happened. So that's kind of just like the fuel, I guess you said the fuel to the fire to keep doing this for sure. Are you where you kind of wanted to be at this stage in your life? I would say no. I'm definitely grateful for where I am. I'm more grateful than where I came from. But where I want to be is, you know, I think it's always room for growth, right? I think there's always opportunity to to mold into something better. I would think maybe what's next is really getting more into mentoring 
in a sense. And at least based on what I know, there's still a lot that I don't know. And I, but I think unlocking the things that I don't know can come through helping others and just having people who are in the same position that I was in. And it may be completely different now because I've never been in a pandemic <laughs> before, <laughs> but being a kind of a bridge for people who want to get to that next level and really take off their careers, I guess that's what really can unlock that space that I really want to be in. Now, one question that I'm kind of asking everyone that's been on the show this year is around sort of the concept is around black futures and like, where do we see ourselves in the future? But how are you Mm -hmm. using your skills to kind of help create a more equitable future? So I would say the fact of like, so being a designer and, and working with these very like passionate companies who want to really change the future, I think creating a catalog and creating kind of like this legacy to let like the future, like future creators and future designers know that the brands that they may look up to down the road were influenced by a black creative, you know, like someone who looks like them. So for example, I think it was, I think it was yesterday, actually, I was, I was having a conversation with my girlfriend and for the longest, I didn't know like the Jack Daniels, like their whole story was influenced by a slave, you know, like the the fact that like how they learn how to create the whiskey, the land that it's owned is owned by a black person. And just hearing that and for a brand that's been around longer than I've been alive was a different type of motivation, right? So if I know that I can get that feeling from learning how someone who looks like me has an impact on something that's so big nowadays, I would love to kind of mirror that and be a part of some, you know, be a part of developing a company or a brand or movement uh, and contribute, you know, the design aspect of that and have some, have a kid maybe 10, 15 or 20 years down the road and say, hey, I've been following this brand or been a part of this community or this business for this long. I didn't know that what I've been looking at was made by someone who looked like me. And that's, and that's huge to me. I think that's kind of a, I guess it's kind of like that goal to be like, hey, this person that looks just like you made this type of impact and then they can go do it for the generation that follows them. So really creating kind of this, this quote unquote design legacy is kind of what I'm aiming for nowadays. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Five years, heavy mentoring. I think I would love to be kind of off the hands-on scene, but being more of like pro- providing mentoring and, and these like maybe creative and art direction on certain things and really allowing more young creatives to be the the driving force of what we're moving into. Because I think we're, at least for me, I'm kind of entering a stage where I've kind of done not necessarily enough, but I've done a lot to where that I don't know within the next five years because of how technology is changing and how 2020 as a whole is literally a new thing every month. Five years is going to be a completely different time. So I would love to be in a space where if I'm not able to contribute like hands-on, but being in a position where I can guide and motivate the people, the creators who are going to be hands-on and kind of step back and let them do their thing. Yeah. I kind of want to touch on that a little bit because I feel like that's a really kind of interesting point in a lot of designers' careers, particularly for black designers, as to mm-hmm. when do you make the, I guess, the shift or the switch from 
doing hands-on work to now being sort of like, as you said, doing creative direction, art direction, you're helping kind of direct Mm -hmm. someone else. And it often feels like that point, it moves a lot based on, Mm -hmm. I guess, where you work or the type of industry that you're doing design work in. I'm just kind of curious about that because it feels like such a big career shift in general to go from, you know, kind of regular designer, rank and file designer to now overseeing other designers or helping out, you know, with the creative Mm -hmm. aspects. So another team can do the kind of hands-on sort of stuff. I don't know what the time frame is for that. I'm always just very curious about it because I mean, even in my own career, like I was a hands-on designer for a long time. Then I started my studio and I was doing hands-on design for about the first, I don't know, maybe three or four years. And then eventually started working with a team. And then I was now doing more, like overseeing the work, overseeing things. Like I'll talk with the client, but then I'm also overseeing the work that other folks are doing. So it's like, I'm curious as to like where that shift kind of comes. I'm just, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here about that. You don't have to nah, answer that. <laughs> no, nah, you're good. No, nah, that's, that's a really great question. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's like a formula or like a scientific method that like helps you find that. I think it's just, it just comes to a point of, really just being self-aware, right? You know, when it gets to a point where you have either the choice of you like being in a position where you don't know if you can actually do this like yourself, like you know what you wanted to accomplish, but you may not be the person that can get it there. And and it comes down to time, right? Like what makes sense more of your time? Because like there's so, you know, as technology advancing, like I don't think design is necessarily going anywhere. I think just the way we approach it is what's going to change. You know, I think the tools are going to become a lot easier. More people are going to become a lot more efficient than they are today. And it just, you know, I think the technology is going to, what's going to literally separate like that and like how, what makes sense for us to actually make and then what makes sense for us as lead. I still don't know the answer as far as like what that, what that time looks like or what it means. But I think for each person or each creator, it, it's going to click. Like it'll make, you may have maybe one or two bad experiences where it, you'd be like, okay, I should have done that. And then that's, I think that's where it's like, okay, let me step back and let me put this person in position to, to win and, and let me just guide. But yeah, but no, that's a really great question. Like I honestly don't have like an answer for that, but you know, I think, you know, ultimately Tyler would tell. Yeah. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? You can check me out at hankdesigns.com. I am across all social media. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram at I am underscore Hank. I'm on Twitter, tweet every now and then, <laughs> and I'm on TikTok. <laughs> so if uh, definitely give me a TikTok follow if you're listening. I'm, I'm trying to navigate my way through there. Yeah, I'm, I'm across the board on the internet, but mainly you can find more about me and my work at HankDesigns.com. I think you're the first person I've had on the show that has thrown out a TikTok. So hey. you're making history. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, Hank Washington, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you really for just kind of sharing your journey. I mean, when I first found out about you, it was actually from Creative South. I had seen you on the list of speakers and everything and kind of was mm. looking at your website, looking at your Instagram. I was like, okay, I, I was like, I see something. I see promise here. And certainly I think from talking with you, I can, I can really feel the enthusiasm that you have for your work. You're just at like a really exciting point in your, I think your life and your career 
And I'm, so I'm really mm. interested to see where you go from here. I mean, you're just starting out with your business. You move to a new city. Like, the sky's the limit from here. And I just want to see just how far you can take it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I'm, I'm honored to, to even be a part of this. Like I said earlier, you know, I've been listening to the podcast before and, and the fact that I'm able to be a part of it is, is mind blowing. So I'm forever grateful and definitely looking forward to see where things go. Big, big thanks to Hank Washington. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Hank and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.